0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today, three more chapters from Tarzan and the Jewels of Opar, beginning with Chapter 9, The Theft of the Jewels. For two days, Werper sought for the party that had accompanied him from the camp to the barrier cliffs, but not until late in the afternoon of the second day did he find clue to its whereabouts, and then in such gruesome form that he was totally unnerved by the sight. In an open glade he came upon the bodies of three of the blacks, terribly mutilated, nor did it require considerable deductive power to explain their murder. Of the little party, only these three had not been slaves. The others, evidently tempted to hope for freedom from their cruel Arab master, had taken advantage of their separation from the main camp to slay the three representatives of the hated power which held them in slavery and vanish into the jungle." Cold sweat exuded from Werper's forehead as he contemplated the fate which chance had permitted him to escape, for had he been present when the conspiracy bore fruit, he, too, must have been of the garnered. Tarzan showed not the slightest surprise or interest in the discovery. Inherent in him was a calloused familiarity with violent death, the refinements of his recent civilization expunged by the force of the sad calamity which had befallen him left only the primitive sensibilities which his childhood's training had imprinted indelibly upon the fabric of his mind. The training of Kalla, the examples and precepts of Kerchak, of Tublet, and of Turquoise, now formed the basis of his every thought and action. He retained a mechanical knowledge of French and English speech. Werper had spoken to him in French, "'and Tarzan had replied in the same tongue "'without conscious realization "'that he had departed from the anthropoidal speech "'in which he had addressed La. "'Had Werper used English, "'the result would have been the same. "'Again, that night, "'as the two sat before their campfire, "'Tarzan played with his shining baubles. "'Werper asked him what they were "'and where he had found them. "'The ape-man replied that they were gay-colored stones "'with which he purposed fashioning a necklace.' and that he had found them far beneath the sacrificial court of the Temple of the Flaming God. Werper was relieved to find that Tarzan had no conception of the value of the gems. This would make it easier for the Belgian to obtain possession of them. Possibly the man would give them to him for the asking. Werper reached out his hand toward the little pile that Tarzan had arranged upon a piece of flat wood before him. "'Let me see them,' said the Belgian. Tarzan placed a large palm over his treasure. He bared his fighting fangs and growled. Werper withdrew his hand more quickly than he had advanced it. Tarzan resumed his playing with the gems and his conversation with Werper as though nothing unusual had occurred. He had but exhibited the beast's jealous protective instinct for possession. When he killed, he shared the meat with Werper. But had Werper ever, by accident, laid a hand upon Tarzan's share he would have aroused the same savage and resentful warning. From that occurrence dated the beginning of a great fear in the breast of the Belgian for his savage companion. He had never understood the transformation that had been wrought in Tarzan by the blow upon his head, other than to attribute it to a form of amnesia. That Tarzan had once been, in truth, a savage, jungle beast, Werper had not known, and so, of course, he could not guess that the man had reverted to the state in which his childhood and young manhood had been spent. Now Werper saw in the Englishman a dangerous maniac, whom the slightest untoward accident might turn upon him with rending fangs. Not for a moment did Werper attempt to delude himself into the belief that he could defend himself successfully against an attack by the ape-man. His one hope lay in eluding him, and making for the far-distant camp of Ahmed Zek as rapidly as he could, but armed only with the sacrificial knife, Werper shrank from attempting the journey through the jungle. Tarzan constituted a protection that was by no means despicable, even in the face of the larger carnivora, as Werper had reason to acknowledge from the evidence he had witnessed in the Oparian temple. Two, also, Werper had his covetous soul set upon the pouch of gems, and so he was torn between the various emotions of avarice and fear. "'but avarice it was that burned most strongly in his breast. "'To the end that he dared the dangers and suffered the terrors "'of constant association with him he thought a madman, "'rather than give up the hope of obtaining possessions of the fortune "'which the contents of the little pouch represented. "'Achmed Zek should know nothing of these. "'These would be for Werper alone. "'And so soon as he could encompass his design, "'he would reach the coast and take passage for America.' where he could conceal himself beneath the veil of a new identity, and enjoy to some measure the fruits of his theft. He had it all planned out, did Lieutenant Albert Werper, living in anticipation the luxurious life of the idle rich. He even found himself regretting that America was so provincial, and that nowhere in the New World was a city that might compare with his beloved Brussels. It was upon the third day of their progress from Opar that the keen ears of Tarzan caught the sound of men behind them. Werper heard nothing above the humming of the jungle insects and the chattering life of the lesser monkeys and the birds. For a time, Tarzan stood in statuesque silence, listening, his sensitive nostrils dilating as he assayed each passing breeze. Then he withdrew Werper into the concealment of thick brush and waited. Presently, along the game trail that Werper and Tarzan had been following, there came in sight a sleek, black warrior, alert and watchful. In single file behind him, there followed, one after another, near fifty others, each burdened with two dull yellow ingots lashed upon his back. Werper recognized the party immediately as that which had accompanied Tarzan on his journey to Opar. He glanced at the ape-man, but in the savage, watchful eyes he saw no recognition of Basuli and those other loyal waziri. When all had passed, Tarzan rose and emerged from concealment. He looked down the trail in the direction the party had gone. Then he turned to Werper. "'We will follow and slay them,' he said. "'Why?' asked the Belgian. "'They are black,' explained Tarzan. "'It was a black who killed Kala. "'They are the enemies of the Manganis. "'Werper did not relish the idea of engaging in battle with Basuli "'and his fierce fighting-men. "'And again. "'He had welcomed the sight of them returning toward the Greystoke bungalow, for he had begun to have doubts as to his ability to retrace his steps to the Waziri country. Tarzan he knew had not the remotest idea of whither they were going. By keeping at a safe distance behind the laden warriors, they would have no difficulty in following them home Once at the bungalow, Werper knew the way to the camp of Ahmed Zek. There was still another reason why he did not wish to interfere with the Waziri they were bearing the great burden of treasure in the direction he wished it borne. The farther they took it, the less the distance that he and Achmed-Zek would have to transport it. He argued with the ape-man, therefore, against the latter's desire to exterminate the blacks, and at last he prevailed upon Tarzan to follow them in peace, saying that he was sure they would lead them out of the forest into a rich country, teeming with game. It was many marches from Opar to the Waziri country, but at last came the hour when Tarzan and the Belgian, following the trail of the warriors, topped the last rise, and saw before them the broad Waziri plain, the winding river, and the distant forests to the north and west. A mile or more ahead of them, the line of warriors was creeping like a giant caterpillar through the tall grasses of the plain. Beyond, grazing herds of zebra, hartebeest and topi dotted the level landscape, while closer to the river a Bull-Buffalo, his head and shoulders protruding from the reeds, watched the advancing natives for a moment, only to turn at last and disappear into the safety of his dank and gloomy retreat. Tarzan looked out across the familiar vista with no faintest gleam of recognition in his eyes. He saw the game animals, and his mouth watered, but he did not look in the direction of his bungalow. Werper, however, did. A puzzled expression entered the Belgian's eyes, He shaded them with his palms, and gazed long and earnestly toward the spot where the bungalow had stood. He could not credit the testimony of his eyes. There was no bungalow, no barns, no outhouses. The corrals, the haystacks, all were gone. What could it mean? And then, slowly, there filtered into Werper's consciousness an explanation of the havoc that had been wrought in that peaceful valley since last his eyes had rested upon it. Achmet Zek had been there. Basuli and his warriors had noted the devastation the moment they had come in sight of the farm. Now they hastened on toward it, talking excitedly among themselves in animated speculation upon the cause and meaning of the catastrophe. When at last they crossed the trampled garden and stood before the charred ruins of their master's bungalow, their greatest fears became convictions in the light of the evidence about them. Remnants of human dead— half devoured by prowling hyenas and others of the carnivora which infested the region, lay rotting upon the ground, and among the corpses remained sufficient remnants of their clothing and ornaments to make clear to Basuli the frightful story of the disaster that had befallen his master's house. The Arabs, he said, as his men clustered about him. The waziri gazed about in mute rage for several minutes. "'Everywhere they encountered only further evidence "'of the ruthlessness of the cruel enemy "'that had come during the great Juana's absence "'and laid waste his property. "'What did they with Lady? "'They had always called Lady Greystoke thus. "'The women they would have taken with them,' said Basuli. "'Our women and his.' "'A giant native raised his spear above his head "'and gave voice to a savage cry of rage and hate. "'The others followed his example. "'Basuli silenced them with a gesture.' "'This is no time for useless noises of the mouth,' he said. "'The great Buana has taught us that it is acts by which things are done, not words. "'Let us save our breath. "'We shall need it all to follow up the Arabs and slay them. "'If Lady and our women live, the greater the need of haste, "'and warriors cannot travel fast upon empty lungs.' "'From the shelter of the reeds along the river, "'Wirper and Tarzan watched the Waziri. "'They saw them dig a trench with their knives and fingers.' they saw them lay their yellow burdens in it and scoop the overturned earth back over the tops of the ingots. Tarzan seemed little interested after Werper had assured him that that which they buried was not good to eat, but Werper was intensely interested. He would have given much had he had his own followers with him, that he might take away the treasure as soon as the blacks left, for he was sure that they would leave this scene of desolation and death as soon as possible. The treasure buried... The natives removed themselves a short distance upwind from the fetid corpses, where they made camp, that they might rest before setting out in pursuit of the Arabs. It was already dusk. Werper and Tarzan sat devouring some pieces of meat they had brought from their last camp. The Belgian was occupied with his plans for the immediate future. He was positive that the Waziri would pursue Ahmed Zek, for he knew enough of savage warfare and of the characteristics of the Arabs and their degraded followers. "'to guess that they had carried the Waziri women off into slavery. "'This alone would assure immediate pursuit "'by so warlike a people as the Waziri. "'Werper felt that he should find the means "'and the opportunity to push on ahead, "'that he might warn Ahmed Zek of the coming of Basuli, "'and also of the location of the buried treasure. "'What the Arab would now do with Lady Greystoke "'in view of the mental affliction of her husband, "'Werper neither knew nor cared.' It was enough that the golden treasure buried upon the site of the burned bungalow was infinitely more valuable than any ransom that would have occurred even to the avaricious mind of the Arab. And if Werper could persuade the raider to share even a portion of it with him, he would be well satisfied. But by far the most important consideration, to Werper at least, was the incalculably valuable treasure in the little leathern pouch at Tarzan's side. If he could but obtain possession of this! he must, and he would. His eyes wandered to the object of his greed. They measured Tarzan's giant frame and rested upon the rounded muscles of his arms. It was hopeless. What could he, Werper, hope to accomplish, other than his own death, by an attempt to wrest the gems from their savage owner? Disconsolate, Werper threw himself upon his side. His head was pillowed on one arm, "'the other rested across his face in such a way "'that his eyes were hidden from the ape-man, "'though one of them was fastened upon him "'from beneath the shadow of the Belgian's forearm. "'For a time he lay thus, glowering at Tarzan, "'and originating schemes for plundering him of his treasure, "'schemes that were discarded as futile "'as rapidly as they were born. "'Tarzan presently let his own eyes rest upon Werper. "'The Belgian saw that he was being watched, "'and lay very still.' After a few moments, he simulated the regular breathing of deep slumber. Tarzan had been thinking. He had seen the Waziri bury their belongings. Werper had told him that they were hiding them lest someone find them and take them away. This seemed to Tarzan a splendid plan for safeguarding valuables. Since Werper had evinced a desire to possess his glittering pebbles, Tarzan, with the suspicions of a savage, had guarded the baubles, of whose worth he was entirely ignorant, "'as zealously as though they spelled life or death to him. "'For a long time the ape-man sat watching his companion. "'At last, convinced that he slept, "'Tarzan withdrew his hunting knife "'and commenced to dig a hole in the ground before him. "'With the blade he loosened up the earth, "'and with his hands he scooped it out "'until he had excavated a little cavity a few inches in diameter "'and five or six inches in depth. "'Into this he placed a pouch of jewels.' "'Werper almost forgot to breathe after the fashion of a sleeper, "'as he saw what the ape-man was doing. "'Werper had to hold himself back to keep silent. "'Tarzan became suddenly rigid as his keen ears noted the cessation "'of the regular inspirations and expirations of his companion. "'His narrowed eyes bored straight down upon the Belgian. "'Werper felt that he was lost. "'He must risk all on his ability to carry on the deception. "'He sighed, threw both arms outward.' "'and turned over on his back, mumbling as though in the throes of a bad dream. "'A moment later, he resumed the regular breathing. "'Now he could not watch Tarzan, "'but he was sure that the man sat for a long time looking at him. "'Then, faintly, Werper heard the other's hands scraping dirt, "'and later patting it down. "'He knew then that the jewels were buried. "'It was an hour before Werper moved again.' Then he rolled over, facing Tarzan, and opened his eyes. The ape-man slept. By reaching out his hand, Wurpika touched the spot where the pouch was buried. For a long time he lay watching and listening. He moved about, making more noise than necessary. Yet Tarzan did not awaken. He drew the sacrificial knife from his belt and plunged it into the ground. Tarzan did not move. Cautiously, the Belgian pushed the blade downward through the loose earth above the pouch. He felt the point touch the soft, tough fabric of the leather. Then he pried down upon the handle. Slowly the little mound of loose earth rose and parted. An instant later a corner of the pouch came into view. Werfer pulled it from his hiding place and tucked it in his shirt. Then he refilled the hole and pressed the dirt carefully down as it had been before. Greed had prompted him to an act. The discovery of which by his companion could lead only to the most frightful consequences for Werper. Already he could almost feel those strong, white fangs burying themselves in his neck. He shuddered. Far out across the plain, a leopard screamed, and in the dense reeds behind him, some great beast moved on padded feet. Werper feared these prowlers of the night, but infinitely more he feared the just wrath of the human beast sleeping at his side with utmost caution, the Belgian arose. Tarzan did not move. Werper took a few steps toward the plain and the distant forest to the northwest. Then he paused and fingered the hilt of the long knife in his belt. He turned and looked down upon the sleeper. "'Why not?' he mused. "'Then I should be safe.' He returned and bent above the ape-man, Clutched tightly in his hand was the sacrificial knife of the High Priestess of the Flaming God. We'll return with Chapter 10 of Tarzan and the Jewels of Opar, right after these sponsor messages. And now, Chapter 10, Achmed Zek Sees the Jewels. Mugambi, weak in suffering, had dragged his painful way along the trail of the retreating raiders, He could move but slowly, resting often, but the savage hatred and an equally savage desire for vengeance kept him to his task. As the days passed, his wounds healed, and his strength returned, until at last his giant frame had regained all of its former mighty powers. Now he went more rapidly, but the mounted Arabs had covered a great distance while the wounded native had been painfully crawling after them. They had reached their fortified camp, and there Achmed Zek awaited the return of his lieutenant, Albert Werper. During the long, rough journey, Jane Clayton had suffered more in anticipation of her impending fate than from the hardships of the road. Achmed Zek had not deigned to acquaint her with his intentions regarding her future. She prayed that she had been captured in the hope of ransom, for if such should prove the case, no great harm would befall her at the hands of the Arabs. But there was the chance, a horrid chance, "'that another fate awaited her. "'She had heard of many women, "'among whom were white women, "'who had been sold by outlaws such as Ahmed Zek "'into the slavery of black harems, "'or taken farther north "'into the almost equally hideous existence "'of some Turkish seraglio. "'Jane Clayton was of sterner stuff "'than that which bends in spineless terror before danger. "'Until hope proved futile, "'she would not give up, "'nor did she entertain thoughts of self-destruction,' only as a final escape from dishonor. So long as Tarzan lived, there was every reason to expect succor No man nor beast who roamed the savage continent could boast the cunning and the powers of her lord and master. To her, he was little short of omnipotent in his native world, this world of savage beasts and savage men. Tarzan would come, and she would be rescued and avenged, of that she was certain." She counted the days that must elapse before he would return from Opar and discover what had transpired during his absence. After that, it would be but a short time before he had surrounded the Arab stronghold and punished the motley crew of wrongdoers who inhabited it. That he could find her, she had no slightest doubt. No spoor, however faint, could elude the keen vigilance of his senses. To him, the trail of the raiders would be as plain as the printed page of an open book to her and while she hoped, there came through the dark jungle another. Terrified by night and by day came Albert Werper. A dozen times he had escaped the claws and fangs of the giant carnivora, only by what seemed a miracle to him. Armed with nothing more than the knife he had brought with him from Opar, he had made his way through as savage a country as yet exists upon the face of the globe. By night he had slept in trees, by day he had stumbled fearfully on, "'often taking refuge among the branches "'when sight or sound of some great cat "'warned him from danger. "'But at last he had come within sight of the palisade "'behind which were his fierce companions. "'At almost the same time, "'Mugambi came out of the jungle before the walled village. "'As he stood in the shadow of a great tree, "'reconnoitering, he saw a man, "'ragged and disheveled, "'emerge from the jungle, almost at his elbow. "'Instantly he recognized the newcomer "'as he who had been a guest of his master "'before the latter had departed for Opar. "'The waziri was upon the point of hailing the Belgian "'when something stayed him. "'He saw the white man walking confidently "'across the clearing toward the village gate. "'No sane man thus approached a village "'in this part of Africa "'unless he was sure of a friendly welcome. Mugambi waited. "'His suspicions were aroused. "'He heard Werper hello. "'He saw the gates swing open and he witnessed the surprised and friendly welcome that was accorded the erstwhile guest of Lord and Lady Greystoke. A light broke upon the understanding of Mugambi. This white man had been a traitor and a spy. It was to him they owed the raid, during the absence of the great Buana. To his hate for the Arabs, Mugambi added a still greater hate for the white spy. Within the village, Werper passed hurriedly toward the silken tent of Ahmed Zek the Arab arose as his lieutenant entered. His face showed surprise as he viewed the tattered apparel of the Belgian. What has happened? he asked. Werper narrated all, save the little matter of the pouch of gems which were now tightly strapped about his waist, beneath his clothing. The Arab's eyes narrowed greedily as his henchman described the treasure that the Waziri had buried beside the ruins of the Greystoke bungalow. It will be a simple matter now to return and get it, "'said Achmed Zek. first we will await the coming of the rash waziri, "'and after we have slain them, "'we may take our time to the treasure. "'None will disturb it where it lies, "'for we shall leave none alive who knows of its existence.' "'And the woman?' asked Werper. "'I shall sell her in the north,' replied the raider. "'It's the only way now. "'She should bring a good price.' "'The Belgian nodded. "'He was thinking rapidly.' If he could persuade Ahmed Zek to send him in command of the party which took Lady Greystoke north, it would give him the opportunity he craved to make his escape from his chief. He would forego a share of the gold, if he could but get away unscathed with the jewels. He knew Ahmed Zek well enough by this time to know that no member of his band was ever voluntarily released from the service of Ahmed Zek. Most of the few who deserted were recaptured. More than once had Werper listened to their agonized screams as they were tortured before being put to death. The Belgian had no wish to take the slightest chance of recapture. "'Who will go north with the woman?' he asked, while we are returning for the gold that the waziri buried by the bungalow of the Englishman. Ahmed Zek thought for a moment. The buried gold was of much greater value than the price the woman would bring. It was necessary to rid himself of her as quickly as possible, and it was also well to obtain the gold with the least possible delay. Of all his followers, the Belgian was the most logical lieutenant to entrust with the command of one of the parties. An Arab as familiar with the trails and tribes as Ahmed Zek himself might collect the woman's price and make good his escape into the far north. Werper, on the other hand, could scarce make his escape alone to a country hostile to Europeans, while the men he would send with the Belgian could be carefully selected with a view to preventing Werper from persuading any considerable portion of his command to accompany him should he contemplate desertion of his chief. At last the Arab spoke, It is not necessary that we both return for the gold. You shall go north with the woman, carrying a letter to a friend of mine who is always in touch with the best markets for such merchandise, while I return for the gold. We can meet again here, when our business is concluded. Werper could scarce disguise the joy with which he received this welcome decision. And that he did entirely disguise it from the keen and suspicious eyes of Ahmed Zek is open to question. However, the decision reached, the Arab and his lieutenant discussed the details of their forthcoming ventures for a short time further, when Werper made his excuses and returned to his own tent for the comforts and luxury of a long-desired bath and shave. Having bathed, the Belgian tied a small hand-mirror to a cord sewn to the rear wall of his tent, placed a rude chair beside an equally rude table that stood beside the glass, and proceeded to remove the rough stubble from his face. In the catalogue of masculine pleasures there is scarce one which imparts a feeling of greater comfort and refreshment than follows a clean shave. And now, with weariness temporarily banished, Albert Werper sprawled in his rickety chair to enjoy a final cigarette before retiring. His thumbs, tucked in his belt in lazy support of the weight of his arms, touched the belt which held the jewel pouch about his waist. He tingled with excitement as he let his mind dwell upon the value of the treasure, which, unknown to all save himself, lay hidden beneath his clothing. What would Ahmed Zek say if he knew? Werper grinned. How the old rascal's eyes would pop could he but have a glimpse of those scintillating beauties. "'Werper had never yet had an opportunity "'to feast his eyes for any great length of time upon them. "'He had not even counted them. "'Only roughly had he guessed at their value. "'He unfastened the belt "'and drew the pouch from its hiding place. "'He was alone. "'The balance of the camp, "'save the sentries, had retired. "'None would enter the Belgian's tent. "'He fingered the pouch, "'feeling out the shapes and sizes "'of the precious little nodules within. "'He hefted the bag.' first in one palm, then in another, and at last he wheeled his chair slowly round before the table, and in the rays of his small lamp let the glittering gems roll out upon the rough wood. The refulgent rays transformed the interior of the soiled and squalid canvas to the splendor of a palace in the eyes of the dreaming man. He saw the gilded halls of pleasure that would open their portals to the possessor of the wealth which lay scattered upon this stained and dented tabletop. He dreamed of joys and luxuries and power which which had always lain beyond his grasp, and as he dreamed, his gaze lifted from the table, as the gaze of a dreamer will, to a far distant goal above the mean horizon of terrestrial commonplaceness. Unseen, his eyes rested upon the shaving mirror which still hung upon the tent wall above the table, but his sight was focused far beyond, and then a reflection moved within the polished surface of the tiny glass, the man's eyes shot back out of space to the mirror's face, and in it he saw reflected the grim visage of Ahmed Zek, framed in the flaps of the tent doorway behind him. Werper stifled a gasp of dismay. With rare self possession, he let his gaze drop, without appearing to have halted upon the mirror until it rested again upon the gems. Without haste, he replaced them in the pouch, tucked the latter into his shirt, selected a cigarette from his case lighted it, and rose. Yawning and stretching his arms above his head, he turned slowly toward the opposite end of the tent. The face of Achmed Zek had disappeared from the opening. To say that Albert Werper was terrified would be putting it mildly. He realized that he had not only sacrificed his treasure, but his life as well. Achmed Zek would never permit the wealth that he had discovered to slip to his fingers nor would he forgive the duplicity of a lieutenant who had gained possession of such a treasure without offering to share it with his chief. Slowly the Belgian prepared for bed. If he were being watched, he could not know. But if so, the watcher saw no indication of the nervous excitement which the European strove to conceal. When ready for his blankets, the man crossed to the little table and extinguished the light. It was two hours later that the flaps at the front of the tent separated silently, and gave entrance to a dark-robed figure, which passed noiselessly from the darkness without to the darkness within. Cautiously the prowler crossed the interior. In one hand was a long knife. He came at last to the pile of blankets spread upon several rugs close to one of the tent walls. Lightly his fingers sought and found the bulk beneath the blankets, the bulk that should be Albert Werper. Albert Werper They traced out the figure of a man, and then an arm shot upward, poised for an instant, and descended. Again and again it rose and fell, and each time the long blade of the knife buried itself in the thing beneath the blankets. But there was an initial lifelessness in the silent bulk that gave the assassin momentary wonder. Feverishly he threw back the coverlets, and searched with nervous hands for the pouch of jewels which he expected to find concealed upon his victim's body. "'An instant later he rose with a curse upon his lips. "'It was Ahmed Zek, and he cursed "'because he had discovered beneath the blankets of his lieutenant "'only a pile of discarded clothing "'arranged in the form and semblance of a sleeping man. "'Albert Werper had fled. "'Out into the village ran the chief, "'calling in angry tones to the sleepy Arabs "'who tumbled from their tents in answer to his voice. "'But though they searched the village again and again,' they found no trace of the Belgian. Foaming with anger, Ahmed Zek called his followers to horse, and though the night was pitch black, they set out to scour the adjoining forest for the quarry. As they galloped from the open gates, Mugambi, hiding in a nearby bush, slipped, unseen, within the palisade. A score of natives crowded about the entrance to watch the searchers depart, and as the last of them passed out of the village, the natives seized the portals and drew them to, and Mugambi lent a hand in the work, as though the best of his life had been spent among the raiders. In the darkness he passed, unchallenged, as one of their number. And as they returned from the gates to their respective tents and huts, Mugambi melted into the shadows and disappeared. For an hour he crept about in the rear of the various huts and tents in an effort to locate that in which his master's mate was imprisoned. One there was which he was reasonably assured contained her, for it was the only hut before the door of which a sentry had been posted. Mugambi was crouching in the shadow of this structure, just around the corner from the unsuspecting guard, when another approached to relieve his comrade. "'The prisoner is safe within?' asked the newcomer. "'She is,' replied the other, "'for none has passed this doorway since I came.' The new sentry squatted beside the door, while he whom he had relieved made his way to his own hut. Mugambi slunk closer to the corner of the building. "'In one powerful hand he gripped a heavy knobstick. "'No sign of elation disturbed his phlegmatic calm, "'yet inwardly he was aroused to joy "'by the proof he had just heard "'that lady really was within. "'The sentry's back was toward the corner of the hut "'which hid the giant Mugambi. "'The fellow did not see the huge form "'which silently loomed behind him. "'The knobstick swung upward in a curve "'and downward again. "'There was the sound of a dull thud, "'the crushing of heavy bone.' and the sentry slumped into a silent, inanimate lump of clay. A moment later, Mugambi was searching the interior of the hut, at first slowly calling, "'Lady!' in a low whisper, and finally with almost frantic haste, until the truth presently dawned upon him. The hut was empty. And now Chapter 11 Tarzan Becomes a Beast Again For a moment, Werper had stood above the sleeping ape-man, his murderous knife poised for a fatal thrust, but fear stayed his hand. What if the first blow should fail to drive the point to his victim's heart? Werper shuddered in contemplation of the disastrous consequences to himself. Awakened, and even with a few moments of life remaining, the giant could literally tear his assailant to pieces should he choose, and the Belgian had no doubt but that Tarzan would so choose. Again came the soft sound of padded footsteps in the reeds. Closer this time. "'Werper abandoned his design. "'Before him stretched a wide plain an escape. "'The jewels were in his possession. "'To remain longer was to risk death at the hands of Tarzan, "'or the jaws of the hunter creeping ever nearer. "'Turning, he slunk away through the night, "'toward the distant forest. "'Tarzan slept on. "'Where were those uncanny guardian powers "'that had formerly rendered him immune "'from the dangers of surprise?' Could this dull sleeper be the alert, sensitive Tarzan of old? Perhaps the blow upon his head had numbed his senses temporarily. Who may say? Closer crept the stealthy creature through the reeds. The rustling curtain of vegetation parted a few paces from where the sleeper lay, and the massive head of a lion appeared. The beast surveyed the ape man intently for a moment. Then he crouched, his hind feet drawn well beneath him, his tail lashing from side to side. It was the beating of the beast's tail against the reeds which awakened Tarzan. Jungle folk do not awaken slowly. Instantly, full consciousness and full command of their every faculty returns to them from the depth of profound slumber. Even as Tarzan opened his eyes, he was upon his feet, his spear grasped firmly in his hand and ready for attack. Again, he was Tarzan of the apes, sentient, vigilant, ready. No two lions have identical characteristics, nor does the same lion invariably act similarly under like circumstances. Whether it was surprise, fear, or caution which prompted the lion crouching ready to spring upon the man is immaterial. The fact remains that he did not carry out his original design. He did not spring at the man at all, but, instead, wheeled and sprang back into the reeds as Tarzan arose and confronted him. The ape-man shrugged his broad shoulders and looked about for his companion. Werper was nowhere to be seen. At first Tarzan suspected that the man had been seized and dragged off by another lion, but upon examination of the ground, he soon discovered that the Belgian had gone away alone out under the plain. For a moment he was puzzled, but presently came to the conclusion that Werper had been frightened by the approach of the lion and had sneaked off in terror. A sneer touched Tarzan's lips as he pondered the man's act, the desertion of a comrade in time of danger, and without warning. Well, if that was the sort of creature Werper was, Tarzan wished nothing more of him. He had gone, and for all the ape-man cared, he might remain away. Tarzan would not search for him. A hundred yards from where he stood grew a large tree, alone upon the edge of the reedy jungle. Tarzan made his way to it, clambered into it, and finding a comfortable crotch among its branches, reposed himself for uninterrupted sleep until morning. And when morning came, Tarzan slept on long after the sun had risen. His mind, reverted to the primitive, was untroubled by any more serious obligations than those of providing sustenance and safeguarding his life. Therefore, there was nothing to awaken for until danger threatened, or the pangs of hunger assailed. It was the latter, pangs of hunger, which eventually aroused him. Opening his eyes, he stretched his giant thews, yawned, rose, and gazed about him to the leafy foliage of his retreat. Across the wasted meadowlands and fields of John Clayton, Lord Greystoke, Tarzan of the Apes looked, as a stranger, upon the moving figures of Basuli and his braves as they prepared their morning meal and made ready to set out upon the expedition which Basuli had planned after discovering the havoc and disaster which had befallen the estate of his dead master. The ape-man eyed the natives with curiosity, and the back of his brain loitered a fleeting sense of familiarity with all that he saw. Yet he could not connect any of the various forms of life, animate and inanimate, which had fallen within the range of his vision since he had emerged from the darkness of the pits of Opar with any particular event of the past. Hazely he recalled a grim and hideous form, hairy, ferocious. A vague tenderness "'dominated his average sentiments "'as this phantom memory struggled for recognition. "'His mind had reverted to his childhood days. "'It was the figure of the giant she-ape Kala "'that he saw, but only half recognized. "'He saw two other grotesque, man-like forms. "'They were of Turkas, Tublet, Kerchak, "'and a smaller, less ferocious figure. "'That was Nita, the little playmate of his boyhood. "'Slowly, very slowly,' As these visions of the past animated his lethargic memory, he came to recognize them. They took definite shape and form, adjusting themselves nicely to the various incidents of his life with which they had been intimately connected. His boyhood among the apes spread itself in a slow panorama before him, and as it unfolded it induced within him a mighty longing for the companionship of the shaggy, low-browed brutes of his past. HE WATCHED THE Waziri SCATTER THEIR COOK FIRE AND DEPART, BUT THOUGH THE FACE OF EACH OF THEM HAD BUT RECENTLY BEEN AS FAMILIAR TO HIM AS HIS OWN, THEY AWAKENED WITH HIM, NO RECOLLECTIONS WHATSOEVER. WHEN THEY HAD GONE, HE DESCENDED FROM THE TREE AND SOUGHT FOOD. OUT UPON THE plain GRAZED NUMEROUS HERDS OF WILD RUMINANTS. TOWARD A SLEEK, FAT BUNCH OF ZEBRA HE WORMED HIS STEALTHY WAY. No intricate process of reasoning caused him to circle widely until he was downwind from his prey. He acted instinctively. He took advantage of every form of cover as he crawled upon all fours and often flat upon his stomach toward them. A plump young mare and a fat stallion grazed nearest to him as he neared the herd. Again it was instinct which selected the former for his meat. A low bush grew but a few yards from the unsuspecting two. "'The ape-man reached its shelter. "'He gathered his spear firmly in his grasp. "'Cautiously he drew his feet beneath him. "'In a single swift move, "'he rose and cast his heavy weapon at the mare's side. "'Nor did he wait to note the effect of his assault, "'but leaped cat-like after his spear, "'his hunting-knife in his hand. "'For an instant the two animals stood motionless. "'The tearing of the cruel barb into her side "'brought a sudden scream of pain and fright from the mare.' and then they both wheeled and broke for safety. But Tarzan of the apes, for a distance of a few yards, could equal the speed of even these, and the first stride of the mare found her overhauled with a savage beast at her shoulder. She turned, biting and kicking at her foe. Her mate hesitated for an instant, as though about to rush to her assistance, but a backward glance revealed to him the flying heels of the balance of the herd, and with a snort, "'and a shake of his head. "'He wheeled and dashed away. "'Clinging with one hand "'to the short mane of his quarry, "'Tarzan struck again and again "'with his knife at the unprotected heart. "'The result had, "'from the first, been inevitable. "'The mare fought bravely, "'but hopelessly, "'and presently sank to the earth, "'her heart pierced. "'The ape-man placed a foot upon her carcass "'and raised his voice in the victory call "'of the mangani. "'In the distance,' Basuli halted, as the faint notes of the hideous scream broke upon his ears. "'The great apes!' he said to his companion. "'It has been long since I have heard them in the country of the Waziri. What could have brought them back?' Tarzan grasped his kill, and dragged it to the partial seclusion of the bush, which had hidden his own near approach. And there he squatted upon it, cut a huge chunk of flesh from the loin, and proceeded to satisfy his hunger with the warm and dripping meat." Attracted by the shrill screams of the mare, a pair of hyenas slunk presently into view. They trotted to a point a few yards from the gorging ape-man, and halted. Tarzan looked up, bared his fighting fangs, and growled. The hyenas returned the compliment, and withdrew a couple of paces. They made no move to attack, but continued to sit at a respectful distance until Tarzan had concluded his meal. "'After the ape-man had cut a few strips from the carcass to carry with him, "'he walked slowly off in the direction of the river to quench his thirst. "'His way lay directly toward the hyenas, "'nor did he alter his course because of them. "'With all the lordly majesty of Numa, the lion, "'he strode straight toward the growling beasts. "'For a moment they held their ground, bristling and defiant, "'but only for a moment, and then slunk away to one side,' while the indifferent ape-man passed them on his lordly way. A moment later, they were tearing at the remains of the zebra. Back to the reeds went Tarzan, and threw them toward the river. A herd of buffalo, startled by his approach, rose ready to charge or to fly. A great bull pawed the ground and bellowed as his bloodshot eyes discovered the intruder. But the ape-man passed across their front as though ignorant of their existence. The bull's bellowing lessened to a low rumbling. He turned and scraped a horde of flies from his side with his muzzle, cast a final glance at the ape-man, and resumed his feeding. His numerous family either followed his example or stood gazing after Tarzan in mild-eyed curiosity until the opposite reeds swallowed him from view. At the river Tarzan drank his fill and bathed. During the heat of the day, he lay up under the shade of a tree near the ruins of his burned barns. His eyes wandered out across the plain toward the forest, and a longing for the pleasures of its mysterious depths possessed his thoughts for a considerable time. With the next sun he would cross the open and enter the forest. There was no hurry. There lay before him an endless vista of tomorrows with naught to fill them but the satisfying of the appetites and caprices of the moment. "'The ape-man's mind was untroubled by regret for the past "'or aspiration for the future. "'He could lie at full length along a swaying branch, "'stretching his giant limbs, "'and luxuriating in the blessed peace of utter thoughtlessness, "'without an apprehension or a worry to sap his nervous energy "'and rob him of his peace of mind. "'Recalling only dimly any other existence, "'the ape-man was happy. "'Lord Greystoke now ceased to exist.' <clears throat> For several hours Tarzan lolled upon his swaying, leafy couch until once again hunger and thirst suggested an excursion. Stretching lazily, he dropped to the ground and moved slowly toward the river. The game trail down which he walked had become by ages of use a deep, narrow trench, its walls topped on either side by impenetrable thicket and dense growing trees closely interwoven with thick-stemmed creepers and lesser vines inextricably matted into two solid ramparts of vegetation. Tarzan had almost reached the point where the trail debouched upon the open river bottom when he saw a family of lions approaching along the path from the direction of the river. The ape-man counted seven, a male and two lionesses, full-grown, and four young lions as large and quite as formidable as their parents. Tarzan halted, "'growling, and the lions paused, "'the great male in the lead "'baring his fangs and rumbling forth "'a warning roar. "'In his hand the ape-man held "'his heavy spear, but he had "'no intention of pitting his puny weapon "'against seven lions. "'Yet he stood there growling and "'roaring, and the lions did likewise. "'It was purely an "'exhibition of jungle bluff. "'Each was trying to frighten off the other. "'Neither wished to turn "'back and give way.' "'nor did either at first desire to precipitate an encounter. "'The lions were fed sufficiently so as not to be goaded by pangs of hunger, "'and as for Tarzan, he seldom ate the meat of the carnivores. "'But a point of ethics was at stake, and neither side wished to back down. "'So they stood there facing one another, making all sorts of hideous noises, "'the while they hurled jungle incentive back and forth.' How long this bloodless duel would have persisted it's difficult to say, though eventually Tarzan would have been forced to yield to superior numbers. There came, however, an interruption which put an end to the deadlock, and it came from Tarzan's rear. He and the lions had been making so much noise that neither could hear anything above their concerted bedlam, and so it was that Tarzan did not hear the great bulk bearing down upon him from behind until an instant before it was upon him and then he turned to see Butoh, the rhinoceros, his little pig-eyes blazing, charging madly toward him, and already so close that escape seemed impossible. Yet so perfectly were mind and muscles coordinated in this unspoiled, primitive man, that almost simultaneously with the sense-perception of the threatened danger, he wheeled and hurled his spear at Butoh's chest. It was a heavy spear shod with iron, and behind it were the giant muscles of the ape-man, while coming to meet it was the enormous weight of Buto and the momentum of his rapid rush. All that happened in the instant that Tarzan turned to meet the charge of the irascible rhinoceros might take long to tell, and yet would have taxed the swiftest lens to record. As his spear left his hand, the ape-man was looking down upon the mighty horn lowered to toss him, so close was Buto to him. "'The spear entered the rhinoceros's neck "'at its junction with the left shoulder "'and passed almost entirely through the beast's body. "'And at the instant that he launched it, "'Tarzan leaped straight into the air, "'alighting upon Butoh's back, "'but escaping the mighty horn. "'Then Butoh espied the lions "'and bore madly down upon them, "'while Tarzan of the apes leaped nimbly "'into the tangled creepers at one side of the trail. "'The first lion met Butoh's charge,' "'and was tossed high over the back of the maddened brute, "'torn and dying, "'and then the six remaining lions were upon the rhinoceros, "'rending and tearing the while they were being gored or trampled. "'From the safety of his perch, "'Tarzan watched the royal battle with the keenest interest, "'for the more intelligent of the jungle folk "'are interested in such encounters. "'They are to them with the racetrack and the prize ring, "'the theatre and the movies are to us. "'They see them often.' but always they enjoy them, for no two are precisely alike. For a time it seemed to Tarzan that Buto, the rhinoceros, would prove victor in the gory battle. Already he had accounted for four of the seven lions, and badly wounded the three remaining, when in a momentary lull in the encounter he sank limply to his knees and rolled over upon his side. Tarzan's spear had done its work. It was the man-made weapon which killed the great beast "'that might easily have survived the assault of seven mighty lions. "'For Tarzan's spear had pierced the great lungs, "'and Butoh, with victory almost in sight, "'succumbed to internal hemorrhage. "'Then Tarzan came down from his sanctuary, "'and as the wounded lions, growling, dragged themselves away, "'the ape-man cut his spear from the body of Butoh, "'hacked off a stake, and vanished into the jungle. "'The episode was over.' It had been all in a day's work, something which you and I might talk about for a lifetime, which Tarzan dismissed from his mind the moment that the scene passed from his sight. Join us next week for chapters 12, 13, and 14 of Tarzan and the Jewels of Opar. This is your host, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Stories for the Road. We always appreciate reviews, so if you're enjoying our show and you have a moment, please do send a review, and please do share with others. Stay safe, everyone, and we'll be back soon.